Hello and welcome to The Week at Work. My name is David Gibney and I'm your host this week. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Claire O'Connor. Um, but with us this week, we have a, a special guest, as usual. We have um, this week, Breed Smith, who is the Solidarity, Solidarity PVP, People Before Profit TD for Dublin South Central. Um, as you know, uh, most listeners will know, the week of work is part of Left Block, which is the um, an alternative media and political education project that we're running. If you want to know more about it or want to support this podcast or any of the podcasts under the platform, you can go to www.patreon.com forward slash left block. And without further ado, I'm going to go straight to Claire, actually. Claire, um, we as usual, we go through the uh, front pages of the paper. So tell us what's on the front pages of the papers you've been looking at there today. Yeah, so I've been looking at the Examiner and it's the Examiner weekend edition, so it wouldn't have... Uh, this morning's news or yesterday evening's news this would have went out yesterday so most of the page is taken up with the um the murder suicide that happened in Cork which is just devastating and obviously that story's unfolding um and then a couple of other stories are mostly around COVID um you know you have Ronald Glynn coming out talking about please avoid meeting at school gates that's obviously kids are going back to school my I have one of my kids are going back to school tomorrow um and maybe we'll get into that in a little bit more detail uh, in a couple of minutes but yeah I think there's huge anxiety for a lot of people a lot of relief for some people obviously too but I mean I think it's it is worried to be going back when the numbers are still so high um uh there's an article or an introduction to an article for me for more call for legal basis to asylum seeker plan and this is about the white paper that Roderick O'Gorman published during the week about plans to it says scrap you know direct provision but it's um Again, this is something that we'll get into with Breed in a little bit more detail. But, you know, the paper only came out a couple of day, days ago. So I don't think most people have had a chance to read the whole thing. But it it is looking weak. I mean, this this particular article from me for talks about people, activists around direct provision and people living in direct provision are worried that there's going to be no legal basis for this. They're talking about moving people into owned or, you know, purpose built owned or own key accommodation for a maximum of four months before being moved into the community. And I think people just feel like that's, First of all, with the current government and the the lack of any kind of drive to even just build any kind of public housing, never mind, re, you know, reform um, or completely scrap direct provision. I think that feels like a bit of a pipe dream and people feel that because there's no legal basis in it, it'll just be the same thing again. People will be brought in for four months and they'll just be left because the system is so dysfunctional. There's a small little bit of an article about FBD, sure, no for the commercial payouts. But I thought it was interesting in this. So they talk about, you know, they think they have. A, a kind of cap on the amount of money they're going to have to pay out to people. Uh, this is FBD, the, the test case that was taken by four pubs about FBD not paying out on insurance because of COVID. But down the end, there's a, it almost, it's like a press release. They talk about how they, the company has said it also suffered no reputational damage because 90% of its um, clientele have returned. To me, the minute I read that, there's nothing to do with reputational damage. It's, it's that the people understand that the insurance system as a whole, <laughs> the whole industry is just an absolute farce you know people are being screwed left right and center and it doesn't really matter who you go to people feel like insurance is just dysfunctional you know going back to Pierce Doherty's bill during the week that the government voted down and now we're going to have to wait another nine months to see if uh you know to see what the central bank says in its report but yeah I just that it's not a big story but it just jumped out there talking about no reputational damage where to me I think it's more people just know they're going to get screwed no matter which insurance company they go with so they're just people are inclined to let insurance roll over um Small little story there in, in the corner of the paper as well. 317 schoolgirls kidnapped from a school in Nigeria. And I mean, it's deeper into the examiner, it goes into this again. And it actually starts listing, you know, this is this has gone on years in Nigeria where, you know, hundreds of school kids at a time are being kidnapped and they're used either to 
some of them are used to kind of release uh, you know to barter for releasing prisoners some of it is yeah, you know negotiated for ransom but the numbers are just unreal you had like four or five hundred and one just before christmas it you know 200 two months before and the impact i mean it's having on people going to school people are dropping out of school people that already have you know really hard time accessing education now um this is just another barrier to it and it's devastating i mean you know you have all the usual organizations amnesty and that have come out and said you know there's a real worry about the safety of these of these young girls now but um yeah it's just just devastating i mean um to think that you know in this day and age you have a couple of hundred girls going to school you know and they're not safe basically and they're being used in these this kind of back and forward between these groups and the government and the army and it's just yeah it's just really sad but that's yeah that's pretty much it i mean there's there's no no real political stories on the front of the examiner today well i'll i'll um i'll, I'll go through just a couple of quick ones from the sunday times and we'll get definitely be getting into this one in a few minutes but Gardy attacked in clashes with lockdown protesters and um, conspiracy fans jubilant over demo success, and it's in quotations there. Um, there's an article there, Fleet Street editor secretly supported IRA, um, state refused school iPads offer. They're the main, main stories on the Sunday Times. Um, the Mail on Sunday, Gardy hunt COVID thugs, um, and there's a photograph of the thugs with blurred out faces for obviously must be legal reasons, but I don't see why we should be hiding their identities, these people who, it, it's, it's actually a photograph of them lighting the firework. Um, that was shot at the the, the face of the Gardaí who were there uh, at the time, uh, keeping the, the hundreds of protesters back, which is, again, we'll be getting into it and, and the worry about the numbers, because that's one of the concerns I had was when I saw the, the amount of people who actually showed up. Um, Sunday Independent, call for help before triple ch- tragedy. Uh, again, it's about that shooting that you mentioned earlier, Claire. Uh, 7,600 fly home after holidays or visits. Um and then 13 charged after violence in Dublin, uh, another part of it. The, 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 the front page of the Business Post, which is the one I looked into in detail, Varadkar and Donoghue clash over new tax break plans for remote workers. And this is basically Leo Varadkar, as usual, wants a tax, tax cut for workers who work from home. So tax cut is used to, to solve all the problems and all the ills of the world from Varadkar. But revenue are worried about the impact that would have on Dublin city centre and other city centres if people didn't have to go in anymore. So obviously retail and pubs and restaurants and all the rest of it. Fianna Fáil, another one, Breed might want to talk about this in a few minutes. Fianna Fáil support plummets as public vent frustration over pace of vaccine rollout. And finally, Irish shoppers to face higher prices due to Brexit food industry warns. Now, we'll go to Breed now to see if she wants to talk about any of these. But before we do, right, and and, and bear with me and and, and uh, hold on just there for a second about this one, because it's we don't normally do a Friday paper, but I thought the front page of the Irish Times on Friday was absolutely appalling. And I, I saw the outrage on, on Twitter as well, just in terms of the influence that newspapers have over public discourse but also then over public policy. And while this podcast and other podcasts and other lefties out there, and and we might get into this as well as the the far left and why the far left were organizing that protest yesterday, but we might talk about um, this for a second. Strong public support for lifting lockdown as soon as possible is the front page, major headline on, on, on Friday in the Irish Times. And then when you look at the questions that they asked and the restrictions, so here, here's one, for example. Restrictions, the question is asked, is there too many? About right or not enough? Too many, 31%. About right, 43%. Not enough, 24%. So the amount of people who say that the restrictions are about right or not enough is 
But they go with a headline of strong public support for lifting lockdown as soon as possible, which is a, quite an incredible thing to say. And, and the justification from Pat Leahy, who's the political editor, and from the Irish Times has been to a different, they're using the, the evidence from a different question. So let me just give you that question and, and, and the figures and the results, right? So back, would people like to go back to normal once vulnerable are vaccinated, 68%, or would you like to take the zero COVID approach, 30%? Now, the actual question is published on the inside. Participants in the poll were asked, are you in favor of a living with COVID strategy and getting back to normal once the elderly and vulnerable have been vaccinated? Or are you in favor of zero COVID, which would mean keeping restrictions in place until COVID has all been, uh, been all but eliminated? Now, they're leading questions. This is a they, question. they go beyond leading questions, though, because they actually misrepresent the facts. I mean, a basic my background of social science, that's what my degree is like. First year social science student could tell you that they're misleading. They, they're misrepresenting the facts and they're. Um, so there's two issues here. There's that the actual research itself was badly designed and there's, there's real ethical issues there. And then there's the, the report and double downed on that. Yeah. Maybe, Bree, do you want to come in on, on some of this? Because you guys and people. Yeah, question you, you listed the questions but what was the what was the result of the answers so they said 68 percent are in favor of a living with covid strategy and getting back to normal once the elderly are, are vaccinated and only 30 percent want to take the zero zero covid approach but it's it, you know you're going to get these results from a survey when you have leading questions uh, mm. that, that would you like to keep restrictions going <laughs> like i mean the fascinating thing about this is like New Zealand, again, we've talked about this. I have friends living in New Zealand. I'm in regular contact on a daily basis with people in New Zealand and Australia, which have taken the zero COVID approach. There's no restrictions. They're out having parties. They're at gigs. Mate mine, as I said, last weekend was at the Australian Open final, 50% capacity in the stadium. But the Irish Times are not presenting zero COVID as that open the economy once we get, they're presenting it as in this is permanent restrictive restrictions that you'll never get rid of. So, yeah. You know, the one thing that I'm repeatedly getting from my neighbours, friends, and I feel it acutely, I'm sure you do as well, is that the idea that people are being restricted to, you know, the, the limitations that we have to, to be able to do and with our lives. But just in terms of how we move about, we can't go further than five kilometres outside our homes. Um but people are flying in and out of the country every day. The idea that the country's ports and airports are still like a sieve where thousands phone is um is uh sorry i'm just a here it, it is really pissing people off and i i get that completely so when you're asking people about strategies and zero covid and restrictions and all the rest of it you have to think about the context in which, which we are asking it and the context is that they are making a bags of how it's been implemented and the, the the big issue for most people i talk to is the question of free you know people being able to freely come into the country and then we spent last week trying to legislation to deal with mandatory quarantine but it was ridiculous legislation absolutely ridiculous it, it, it so many weaknesses in it so many holes in it won't do the job um it, it, it then allows the minister to list countries, which he said in advance, he was listing 20 countries, all in sub-Saharan Africa, places that we very get very few visitors from. But restrictions from the EU or from the United States are just non-existent. No, no, no checkup on, on, on people or anything else. So um, I think when, when we look at people's reaction, including the reaction yesterday uh, on the streets of Dublin, we have to contextualise it into the way the government are handling it. And I firmly believe 
they're handling it extremely badly. Um, I don't know if you want to go into that, Dave. You know more details of that, or just, just, just. But just for me to say that I think the the, the context in which questions in which questions are asked matters. And then, of course, the context in which they're presented matter, as Claire has said there already. Um, yeah. Before, before, well, we will move on from this, but it's linked again, right? Um, but yesterday's protest, Breed, you're part of, and so is Claire, and, and I've been at the meetings as well. Lakela, the 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 the, the groove that diversity, not division, is it? I think is the is the the catchphrase underneath it. But just to talk about yesterday's event, and this is how much it's all linked because we're talking about COVID and we're talking about the presentation of that stuff. But you might have heard, I'm not even sure if you did hear, Breed, but RTE presenting uh, 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 Paul Reynolds. Uh, presenting on, on RT News yesterday saying that the events that led to such violence and the injuries of Gardaí and riots and breaching of COVID restrictions was organised by the far right and far left. Now, yeah, can but you... he, yeah I, 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 I looked at a thing on Twitter where that actually did come from um, Drew Harris, the Garda commissioner. He actually said that, uh, but he's retracted that this morning on the 10 o'clock news there, RT announced that it was... Uh, Drew Harris has apologised and he's retracted that statement that that was inaccurate um, and fair play to Paul Morphy and Mick Barry who've been onto him uh, and onto his office and onto the media to say that this is complete misrepresentation and a dangerous misrepresentation so he's now retracted it and RT had it on the headline news at 10 o'clock so I hope they repeat it during the day. You know what's yeah. really worrying though is that so he came out this morning um, and retracted. Well, he, he said he clarified it. But like 10 minutes before that, it was all over Twitter that Helen McEntee had been on the radio talking about when asked about the who in the far left were there, she said it was violent Republicans. So considering that Drew Harris was out clarifying that a couple of minutes later, I think it's important now that she be very clear about where she got that information from. Because we, I mean, we, we know how this is used. We know that. Sinn Féin particularly, you know, are the main target for Fianna Gael. It's constant back and forth between the two parties. So any opportunity they can get to kind of demonise, to associate Sinn Féin with violence and republicanism, um, you know, they're taking it. And if Helen McEntee has used this opportunity to politically gain for her own party, I mean, that is just a massive breach of ethics within her own office. And I think, you know, thankfully, on the back of kind of Paul and Mick raising it, everybody really got worked up about it yesterday there was massive backlash online i mean even had stars like people like marion Kay is coming out absolutely livid you know people with really big followings made this very mainstream as well and i think that what's positive about it is it shows a real understanding the kind of political understanding of the difference between the far right and the far left so that yeah. is a little bit of a positive it's nice to see that that did force rte's hand yeah absolutely claire i agree with you there and also that it clarifies for for everybody that um you know the idea that there's two extremes and they, and they are both the problem in equal measure. Um, it's just a complete fallacy that the, the you know, the sort of uh, middle ground that like to consider themselves a middle ground, um, as they said, when they were forming their coalition, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael see themselves as the centre and they're always saying the centre must hold and they don't want to be feel threatened by Sinn Féin or the left or anything else. But it does clarify for ordinary people there is a, the, the far right is not the same as the left and it is not uh, uh, you know, it, it, there's no relationship and no coherent um, argument that the two are connected. So I think that's been a good thing uh, that has come out of it. But um, the events yesterday were quite stunning, weren't they? Really, when you saw the numbers and the the, the stuff that was happening there, um, 
And I, I suppose you might be aware, Claire, that during the week, the far right tried to associate us with it because they put up a, an ad for Gather at Stephen's Green, um, Maria in the name of Lakela and people before profit. So they were trying to construe a sort of association of us with it. Yeah. Uh, were you aware of that? Or did you yeah, see that, yeah, I was. And at the time, people were saying that they were using it to kind of get people in to um to attract people who might be more left-leaning, but were frustrated with um, the lockdown. I didn't think that at all. I thought from the start, now this is an effort to kind of, it's a slur against the left. It's a slur. It's yeah. like, it was actually a long game trying to associate. And again, it's something that leads into, then yesterday you have a message boards and Tifa were there and Tifa were the ones who were, you know, throwing grenades. And it's, it's actually a long game. It's the how, how organized and sophisticated the far right in, in, Put, you know, putting these messages out there already this morning, I saw on social media people that I know sharing um, images of the guy who who let off the firework or the rocket mm-hmm. and they were, had said that he was a guard. Now, you know, he's not and he's he's regularly at these protests Um, a picture of a guard with the rocket and saying that this was before <coughs> that happened. And, and it's so easy to believe this stuff. If you're not really engaged with it, you see something like this and it's yeah. just too easy to suck people in. And that's the real danger. And my big worry is that, like Brad, you, you kind of touched on a couple of minutes ago, is that there's people who, particularly business owners and that, you know, who are becoming really frustrated with the lockdown, who think that they're going to lose their livelihood or, or people who are literally, you know, can't pay their rent, can't pay their mortgages, you know, just are on the breadline. Um. And they're becoming so frustrated. They're becoming a lot more vulnerable to these messages as well. And they're more likely to turn up to, you know, to start turning up to something like this. And that really makes it a prime uh, recruitment ground for the far right because. Yeah, but they're not, they're not bending the wheel, you know, because this is, it's a global, it's a global phenomena. And we have a public uh, meeting now tomorrow night, Nikayla has, and it's looking at the global rise of uh, the far right. Um, they shall not pass is the title of it. But we've got a speaker from Athens where they've been fighting the Golden Dawn. Uh, we've got a Black Lives Matter woman from Minneapolis and we've got a Polish woman <coughs> where uh, the feminist movement are really under attack from the far right. And the same tactics are used. They're very well organised on, on an international level. So when Jordanchenko was, was killed by the police at Christmas, um, I was getting a lot of hate stuff on my Facebook page and we put up a post, responded to it. And then it was, what, what's the word they use for it? They use for it in social media terms. There was a pylon and the pylon amounted to about 15,000 posts having a go at me. Um, but later when we analysed and we got a guy in the, in the party who does analytics of, of these things and uh, more than half of them came from outside the state, most of that from America. So this pylon is organised in, internationally by the far right, you know, to target individuals or to target parties or to target uh, the message. Um, and it was very orchestrated. So, you know, I, I can see how the social media campaign associating the Kalem people for profit with the events yesterday and then also the, the way they got people to it was part of their well thought out strategy but uh, there is a growing there is a growing um association with the far right among the small business people you know like there's a there was a hairdresser in Balbriggan who tried to open up and Ben Gilroy and far right activists went out to support her that was on Thursday I think and then on Friday there was a pub in the Liberties and you know my constituency that started serving pints um you define the 
the health regulations, but not define the law. And this has been kind of starting up and spreading around the country. And it's a kind of a perfect storm, but a typical recipe of how you make a fascist movement. You've got the frustrated, marginalised poor who are scared and who are worried and frustrated and feel abandoned. You've got a political vacuum. And then you're gathering a pace that, um, you know, the middle classes, the small business, small and medium sized businessmen, as they call them, um, who make up a sort of a perfect recipe, classical recipe for what makes a fascist movement. Um, so it really, really is important for the left to uh, build and everybody, not just the left, because uh, like, that's what Lakeil is trying to do is to bring in a broad united front of all forces who want to see. Uh, as the as the banner says, it, unity and diversity, not division. Um, and if we could, someday we will be able to mobilise big anti-racist demonstrations and festivals and concerts and things like that. Someday we'll be able to do it. But at the moment, we just have to gather our forces online. I think. And political, sorry, yeah, and political education is how we do that and messaging. Because like one of the things I really saw yesterday, and it happens all the time, was jumping into just like taking the piss out of people's spelling mistakes and acting like only stupid people get involved in this and you have to be, you know, and this real, um, well, classist, first of all, a lot of the stuff I saw was just really classes as if having some kind of a lack of education or, you know, a, a low level of education or, you know, literacy has anything got to do with actual intelligence or ability to, you know, to think critically. But, um, it's how these things tend to go. It's low, it's low hanging fruit. It's lowest common denominator stuff instead of actually questioning why people are there in the first place, why people are getting sucked in and how we, how we try and engage with people. I mean, listen, I'm not into engaging with fascists to the far right, but there, there is a, there are people who are getting sucked into this who don't actually understand the dog whistles and we need to find a way to try and pull them back. In my community now, I'm getting it all the time. People are just getting so frustrated and so fed up and so fed up with the government making a bags of things. And that one argument about keeping the country safe is comes up all the time and uh, they, they can't even deal with that properly. So, yeah, I think we need to understand people's frustrations, their sense of defeat, their sense of abandonment um, that will feed into this other orchestrated, organised, far-right agenda, but isn't necessarily... Everybody, you know, um, I think Eileen Flynn tried to explain it quite well at our last public meeting <clears throat> that not everybody who gets embroiled and stuff is is a racist or a far right activist. Uh, sometimes it's just a sense of defeat and frustration. And, and a part of that, again, is, is inequality, which we'll get into in a couple of minutes. But and look, I, I don't want to dwell on this or, or go back to it uh, too much, but I just think Drew Harris's comments bear a little bit more analysis from people and, and people, uh, hopefully listeners will, will have a think about this because this guy is the, the commissioner for the Gary Shiakon. He's the main man. He's the top dog. He knows what groups were there yesterday. Well, if he doesn't know what groups were organizing yesterday, then he shouldn't be in the job in the first place. Right. So the question I know, Breed, you, you've explained there and Paul Murphy and Mick Barry and others were pressuring um, the, the Gary to, to come out with a statement. But I have two points to make on this. Drew Harris's correction this morning. It, it doesn't actually say he was wrong. He, he says, despite initial indications following further investigation, there is no corroborated evidence of extreme left factions being involved, right? So he, he's saying there's no evidence. He's not saying they didn't organise. He's saying there's no evidence, but he's also saying despite initial indications, and Paul Murphy has quite rightly pointed out, well, what are the initial indications that the, 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 the left were involved in this whatsoever? 
And um, so I, I still have questions about that. But but then that influence on public policy and on um, uh, on you know people's perceptions around this. So Paul Reynolds and others came out and said that uh, after Joe Harris, they repeated verbatim what he had said, right? And I have a big problem with that. They're journalists. Journalists are supposed to ask the questions and say, "Excuse me, what?" what evidence have you got about the far left being involved in this? But instead they repeat it because it probably suits some sort of an agenda that they have in their own heads or in their, the, 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 the body that they rep represents head. So it's not good enough for journalists to come out and say, well, look, Drew Harris said it, so we had to repeat it. You didn't. Drew Harris said it, so you're supposed to ask Drew Harris, where is your evidence to prove that the left were involved in this whatsoever? That's your job as a journalist. It's it's not to just repeat what other people are saying. So, um, th there are two point points I'd make about it. And then, Breed, you mentioned the George and Kencho when when he was or, or shot dead a couple of weeks ago. You know, the meme that came out and said that he was a, he had thirty two convictions went out there, circulated. Everybody knows now. Well, not everybody knows. Most people know that it was false. It was fake news. It was just made up by the far right, a coordinated far right that knew what they're doing. And this is why I have a problem with Drew Harris providing ammunition to the same very same people. Is all you need to do is put it out there initially, and the first reports that people get stick in their head, and all of a sudden they now think that the far left have been involved in organising this this this. Um, this violent protest that took place on Grafton Street yesterday. So it, it's similar tactics, but I expect better from the leader of Angarda Khan than to give that ammunition, who then, as you saw, the far, and Claire mentioned it, the far right come out and say, it was Antifa that organized this, that, that is the lefties that did it. And it's, it's circulating all over media. And that was supplemented and supported by the statements that were made from Angarda Shiakana and repeated ad nauseum by the media yesterday. So I just wanted to get that off my chest because it was fucking annoying me. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm not, no, I obviously don't want to, to, to um, what's the word, get done for defamation of Drew Harris. Well, we all know his background. He, as the uh, uh, big noise in the PSNI, he did actively try and cover up for the Glenan gang. And he, I, the one person I heard challenging him very well on this was uh, one of the guys from the Miami show band, um, Stephen Travers, who came to the doll and, you know, talked to us about it. And he was shocked when Drew Harris was appointed to guard the commission. We kicked up a bit of a fuss about it. But I did find it quite shocking. And it is true that somebody who's involved in, uh, you know, people will have seen the film about the Glen Ann gang. I forget the name of it. What, can you remember the name of it, uh, Dave? Unquiet Graves. We did a, a podcast episode on a, a special with Bernadette. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, I mean, this, the, 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 this, the stuff that that revealed and the fact that Drew Harris, who's the Garda Commissioner, was connected to it is quite shocking. Um, I'm not saying that Drew Harris himself is now um, supporting the far right, but you're, he absolutely, the irresponsibility of him saying that and then that sticks and the irresponsibility or the sort of lack of pretty decent journalism is hard to get in this country. There's very few who will actually drill down and question and find out what's going on. Isn't, it that, isn't that the case, though? You, you just find it really hard to meet somebody who will actually examine, um, really examine the facts and really examine what people say to them. Yeah, there's too much repeating. There's too much publishing press releases. That, well, that's it. The, the growth of journalism, as it's called. Um, I, I, like I've worked in the media now for 
14, 15 years um, as a you know communications officer and a, working for a PR consultancy and all the rest of it. So I know I know how it operates. And 15, 20 years ago, you'd have a journalist in every newspaper that, say, for instance, was an IOR correspondent, industrial relations correspondent. All of a sudden, now you have one or two in the entire country. And the rest of the reporters are expected to cover maybe seven or eight stories a day, whereas 20 years ago, they'd have two stories. So they could go into in, in, in depth into that story and find out and ask the right question. Now they just, to make their lives easier, they're taking in press releases and then publishing them almost verbatim because you, you can see it. I, I get some of the press releases into ourselves and you know, and then you see it in the, on a, a major news outlet's um, website, and it's it's exactly as was said. Nobody's asking the questions anymore. But I mean, that 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 leads me to a, it's a good link, actually. Nice, nice link to um, Unite's document that they've published this week, which I've, I've had a read of the inequality element of. It. I haven't finished the whole document, but um, the inequality element of it, which was written by Dr. Conor McCabe, is absolutely essential reading for everybody on the left to understand what happened. But it's not just about inequality. So for to give you a little bit of context, on the 15th of December, Pat Leahy published an article. Oh, not Pat Leahy, Seamus Coffey published an article. And people might know Seamus Coffey, economist and, and, and very vocal sort of uh, advocate of uh, certain neoliberal type of, of, of economics, right? You want a red one? Okay. Very clear. Claire, <laughs> can you hear us? I hate you gone. Um, so he published an article on RTE's website uh, which said that inequality in Ireland was falling. And I'm not sure if you've seen this, Brie, but um, he was citing more or less Gini coefficient uh, as an evidence that all of a sudden inequality in Ireland is declining. So that was then picked up by the Irish Times, Pat Leahy, political editor, who published an article repeating the lie that inequality was falling. So then what you had was Jerry Buttermer going into the Shannon and celebrating the fact that incomes are increasing and inequality is falling and we're the only country in the Western world, the developed world, that has that situation and we should be grateful for it and all the rest of it. Now, my my big issue around this stuff is, is not just that it's a lie and it's a, you know, it, it, it's, um, it's all bullshit, really. It's the fact that you can see very transparently how our political system works. We have, in this scenario, this situation, what we're looking at is one economist producing false arguments based on data that is, for instance, he uses data from a survey of 4,000 people, which is the Survey of Income and Living Conditions survey, about 3,000 of which actually answered the survey, uh, or less actually, a huge amount of people in the higher income bracket didn't answer the questions at all. So then the CSO has to go and make adjustments to this data. And in the, the bit that, that Seamus Coffey says inequality is declining, the very next sentence said in the, same, in the report he took his information from said, but inequality is also increasing. But he ignored the second sentence and only yeah, the first yeah. sentence. So what you have then is a media outlet coming and saying inequality is falling. It extends into the political arena. And all of a sudden, we have justification for austerity in the run-up yeah. to, you know, yeah. the, the, w- w- coming out of the pandemic and paying yeah. back everything and all the rest of it. It's that linkage. And and we should have a journal, or not just the journalism, we should we should have a media that's critically looking at that stuff. But what did we okay. get, right? Yeah. Brendan Ogle wrote to the Irish Times to ask for a rebuttal of that because the facts were wrong and the evidence was there to prove the facts were wrong. He was told, we will allow you a, a voice on this but only on condition that you don't mention Pat Leahy or the article that he wrote about this. So 
effectively we'll tell you the parameters of what you can say and what mm. you can't say mm. um, but anyway I, I just think it's a real worry linking that with the front page of the irish times on friday about the zero covid stuff linking it with what drew harris and then all the media came out with then afterwards and saying the far left were involved and you can see now clearly in the space of a week all of these things lining up to show us how our media operates would mm. it I don't know if you've any observations on any of that. No, that's no, that's very interesting what you're saying there. I mean, I, I, I'm the, one of the times I did, um, I said something in the doll about the judge who, <clears throat> who um, quashed the employment sector law, the sectoral employment orders. Do you remember that? Um, he yep. made a judgment that the sectoral employment order in construction was wasn't fit for purpose. Now it's being contested to the Supreme Court, but part of his judgment that quite shocked me was that he said, um, "You, you handsome re remuneration for this kind of work on construction uh, may hamper the ability of of uh, an employer to be competitive." And I just thought to cheat him, you know, it is nearly a quarter of a million wage deciding what's a handsome re remuneration for a building worker and i mentioned this in the doll and they the load of um opposition i got from the, le the legal profession you know the law society the bar council the association of judges they all came down on top of me and then somebody in the irish times published an article that was full of inaccuracies and full of accusations and I looked for a right to reply. And again, just like they told Brendan Ogle, they were trying to design the parameters on which I could do it. Um, so I just didn't bother then, you know, I didn't, I pursued and pursued it as far as I could, but they were trying to tell me what to write. So it really is so infuriating that this, we have a media that really just acts as a cover for the government and their agenda for the establishment and whatever they're up to. No, completely not challenging anything that goes on. So. It's absolutely frustrating. So fair play to you for doing the podcast and for anybody who's trying to put alternative stuff out there. It's really important. And I assume you're getting a good audience and that it will continue to grow because people, there is a hunger and a thirst for more analysis and more questioning rather than just the sort of stuff, the drivel we get in a lot of the media now. I have to say, I think an example of how Sometimes when people are in the media are quite establishment and they've been there for a long time. Um, and if you saw the reaction from Patsy McGarry about some of the criticism on the mother and baby homes report, I mean, it's just, it's gone farcical at this stage. Like the clan project and um, Maeve O'Rourke and, you know, Catherine O'Donnell have been consistently, and Claire McGettrick have been consistently highlighting the, the flaws in like the, the actual design, the actual treatment of survivors, the, you know, the records being supposedly lost and then found and, and just the level of disrespect and the complete lack of any kind of empathy or compassion throughout the whole thing. But then you have someone like Patsy McGarry, who 20 years ago was highlighting the stories of abuse survivors, who was actually giving people a platform to tell their stories and mm. now is, is lashing out at anybody who dares kind of criticise the the commission of the report because he thinks the people involved are of you know high character and have been involved in good stuff before and it's this yeah. idea that like it is it's respectability and it's civility and it's that cult of civility that Emma Kieran talks about about how how dare you like how dare you think that you can criticize us we've been doing this work we've done good work yeah. the idea that because you've done something good in the past that you can't you know that that kind of gives you protection for life and you can just do what you like and Nobody has a right to call out the harm that you're like the debt, re traumatization that you're causing so many people that have been just abused by the state for decades. And it's, um, but it is, and it's all tied in. I think Ireland's such a small country. And, 
you know, the established the word the establishment gets thrown around a lot, but people do become almost institutionalized in that establishment when they get access to power and when they have access to that that level of respectability that they think that how dare you try to take this away from us. And it's um it's just such a pity though, because you see people who were once part of the part of change and then just gradually become part of that establishment and actually protect it and then facilitate the very thing that they once were supposed to be fighting against. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> this is um i mean just to be clear about some of this stuff that we're saying as well we're not saying oh, everyone working in the media is is a is a problem because we have even this weekend you know kitty holland there's a brilliant article there on page two of the irish times um, and kitty has been you know over the last 15 20 years been you know a leading light on on progressive and and really decent reporting along with the likes of Eva moore and you know new a lot of new journalists coming into it who are who are doing really good jobs so we're not saying that the, all of the media um, it, it, we have problems with, but like the article by Kitty Holland today uh, or on Friday was loneliness on the rise across age groups. And it's talking about um, data that has been produced by the Institute of Public Health, um, which shows the 3% of 18 to 34 year olds are saying they are lonely uh, all or most of the time. Um, and then it goes through all of the different age groups and talks about loneliness is distinct from so social isolation. Um, caution Professor O'Sullivan from the Institute of Public Health in Ireland. Not everyone who is lonely is socially isolated and not everyone who's socially isolated is lonely. But it's a really good article talking. And it links again, just before we come back to Breed, but it links again to the whole inequality question and why I'm so passionate and annoyed about the, the coverage or lack of coverage and how it was manipulated about inequality. 5,000, the Institute of Public Health in Ireland, who did yeah. that report, produced a report 10 years ago that showed that 5,400 people die in Ireland from economic inequality, right? 5,000 preventable deaths, which is something I'm always banging on about. 2,900 deaths come from excess winter mortality rates. People too cold in the winter who end up dying because they can't heat their homes or their homes are in, in, insufficiently in, insulated or, or whatever the, the, the issue is there around that. But this is a policy that costs lives and it's being played with as a political football by a media outlet, an economist, and then a political establishment that just treats numbers in whatever way they want to treat it. So anyway, just to get that on the record, and I don't know if anyone has any observations on and wants to say goodbye to Dennis O'Brien, who's just sold up his uh, his stake in Communicor. Um, so I don't know, perhaps we might see more lefties coming on to, uh, onto some of the radio stations formerly owned by Dennis O'Brien. Can I come in on, on, on stuff about loneliness and isolation and, and, and the problems that people feel and the sort of alienation they feel in the modern society? And you touched on something earlier on, which I, I, I think I think trade unions will be concerned about, are concerned about, but also I think all of us would, would, will be concerned about. And that is the question of remote working. Um, obviously, during the lockdown, it's been necessary for people to, to, to work from home. But the people I know who work from home, whether they're involved in working for an insurance company, a financial bank, some, some financial uh, enterprise like a bank or whatever, or um, high tech, they are being really abused by their employers. They're being piled upon to do more and more work. The productivity they're getting from those workers is just incredible. And a lot of them are just feeling very desperate about being stuck in the house and some of them with conditions that aren't appropriate at all. Their space that they live in is, is too small for this. They get up out of bed, move three feet away from where they slept and start working. And that's their day and that's their week. And it has become their year now. It's gone on for a year now. And 
it, it, there's increase in uh, isolation and loneliness and frustration. And I think it's a very worrying trend. And the fact that Leo Varadkar is, is pushing for it, uh, you mentioned earlier on that you read something that Leo Varadkar and Pascal don't know who were arguing about this. But the fact that he's pushing for it, regardless of the tax breaks issue, um, it, it's deeply troubling because sociologically, I don't think that that's a, a desirable move for most workers and people should absolutely have a choice in it. But if it is the move that workers are going to make, we as trades unionists are going to have to think long and hard about the sort of legislation and structures and constraints that we need to put in place around that because it could lead to an awful lot of abuse, increased abuse and exploitation and underpaying of workers because if productivity is going through the roof, these workers who are making it more productive since they've worked from home, saving the companies a load of money on heating, electricity, um, rental of office space, et cetera, insurance costs, all the rest of it. Um, where's the payback for them? Where's the big pay increases that they should be getting? They should be putting in for a 10, 20 percent pay increases at this stage. But most of them are ununionized and that's a real problem. And if they're ununionized and atomized as individuals now away from a workplace, not being able to talk to colleagues, not 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 having that collective uh, environment. I think that's quite a dangerous move for for all those workers. I also I think that like just from my own experience, since I had my kids are very you know I have a four and a five year old, and I haven't been in a physical workplace since I had them. You know, like since I had the two of them. So any work I've done has been from home, and I've been lucky enough to be able to do some of that. Particularly all the activism and organising I do is from home, and it's with the kids around. And that just keeps me saying, you know, while not also not needing childcare. But I think throughout COVID, and like what what we've seen, how women primarily are disproportionately negatively impacted because they have childcare responsibilities and now might be working from home as well and don't have access to to childcare outside the home. I think if we have a real culture of working at home, and I think I do think people should have the right to choose if it's possible. You know, even if it's only a couple of days a week, because I miss being around people and you know the 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 socialization or the socializing in work and just actually the atmosphere and being out of the house particularly if you're living in cramped conditions but I would worry that people that are really desperate are really already on the breadline might see it as an opportunity to be able to work and have the kids around and not um, have to pay for you know childcare that they're paying a second mortgage on and stuff like that and then you just have this, the, the mental pressure of that you know because you can't really you can't work a full-time job and have the kids at home but um, I think people might be end up being pushed into situations where they they feel they have no other choice that this might enable them to to pay their rent or pay their mortgage or you know put food on the table and it's just yeah it's not that's not real choice that's a good point Claire because I think COVID has shown us more than anything else all of the inequalities um in in Irish society and childcare is one of them you know how unaffordable how badly organized how inaccessible it is and how it's so expensive that you know the parents often feel like they're taking out a second mortgage by uh, having their kids minded. Um, so I, I think it, that's one of the areas, as well as health, education, housing, uh, all of the areas that we are uh, guilty in this society of creating massive gaps. Um, and, and the inequality that Dave referred to has all been very much exposed by COVID. And I hope we don't forget when we come out of the lockdown that we don't forget a minute or an, an iota of this and we get we mobilise uh, people power to fight back and demand the stuff that we deserve in this society and get rid of that 
horrible grown inequality because it is grown and you can see it around you. It's grown. Um, I'll, I'll read I'll read the stuff Unite have published, Dave. Thanks for, for letting us know about it. But I can actually see it in, in my community, the massive inequality and how it has grown and grown and deepening all the time. If you can't see it, you're massively privileged. I mean, if you if it's not around you and you can't see it, you're either not looking or you're living somewhere that you're you're seriously cushioned by. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the other things, and, and Breed, I'm glad you raised it about that working from home stuff and uh, the link to trade unionism and all the other stuff. But there's also massive uh, opportunity there for employers to exploit it through bogus self-employment, which is already a major issue. So now you're removing people from a workplace. One of the criteria that, you know, the Labour Court might look at around who controls what type of employment, uh, you know, contract or whatever. So as if we don't have enough problems around bogus self-employment and we already have a tax break that saves, uh, favours that, which is that the employer's PRSI is about 11% roughly, give or take. But for a bogus self-employed employer, so somebody who's forced into that position, it's 4%. So there's already incentives by the state to push people into bogus self-employment and we don't need any more of that sort of stuff. Um, Claire, I don't know if you've got any other stories there. I do I do see one story here in the Business Post, which I might throw at the two of you. Um, constitutional challenge to Shannon voting rules brought to High Court, um, which is a case now from a, 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 a graduate from University of Limerick who's taken a case against the state uh, for not allowing him a vote in the Shannon uh, elections, um, despite the fact that there was a referendum. I think it was, uh, in, was it 79 or it does give you the year. I can't find it here now for, for the life of me, but there was a referendum to allow the government to legislate for the franchise uh, to be extended to, to other universities, but they're, they're refusing to do so. Uh, and now this guy who's only like, there's a photograph of him. He looks very young. Um, has taken a case to the High Court on his own and he's after now obtaining the services of FLAC, the Free Legal Advice Centre, uh, to help him out on this, which is an amazing achievement. That's Fair brilliant, play. yeah. I haven't heard of that. I think, I mean, Shannon voting is so elitist. Like, it, it needs massive reform. It, you know, it's been talked about for years. I think it's on the agenda of a couple of parties. But, like, that's, that's great to actually see something happening because it might force something. The idea that it's bad enough that only people that go to college, you know, get a say. You know, obviously there's other panels and stuff like there's other ways of voting, but pretty much the only people that go to certain colleges get a say. Um, it'd be bad enough if it was only people in colleges. Everybody needs to have a say. I mean, everyone in society, just like they do in the Dáil, needs to have access to, to voting for who goes into Shannon. Because, you know, I, I do think when you look at the, the work of the civil engagement group, like I would have been for the abolition of the Shannon a couple of years ago. But um, I think the work of, you know, like Lynn Ruan and now Eileen, Flynn and um, the civic engagement group is just has been incredible and they, they I think they make a very real difference to legislation some of the amendments they put forward have made a real difference and even some of the work they're putting forward themselves I mean Lynn's work particularly around um, you know criminal justice and, and people with spent convictions is you know it's, it's going to make a very real difference to people's lives so but that's reliant on having people with lived experience in there and that is only going to happen if we more and more if we open it up because again it's just it's it's too elitist at the minute and that's that's great news I love that. Well, look, it would be remiss of us to have Breed Smith on this weekend and not ask her the question about there was a significant increase in the membership of People Before Profit um, this weekend. Uh, and if anybody hasn't seen it, 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 what I'm talking about there is that Paul Murphy and Rise have joined up with people before profit. So, Bree, do you want to talk to us a little bit about that, what's happened there? Um, I know this has been coming for a while, but, um, yeah, just give us a little explainer of what's happened. Yeah, well, I, I, I think it's a very positive move. I mean, the normal sort of um, 
um, image of the left is the first thing of, on the agenda is the split. And there's a certain truth to that, that the left is fractured and doesn't um, you know, put its differences behind and, and work on its common ground more. And you and I, Dave, know this from the involvement in the Right to Water movement and the attempts to bring people together uh, subsequent to that. It's not easy. Um, mind you, having said that, the right are not necessarily all joined up and perfectly united either. I mean, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael tearing each other's hair out at the moment and pulling each other's eyes out over the way they're all making the bags of things. Um, and the coming together of those two parties the first time in 100 years or in the history of the state, <clears throat> whichever way you want to put it, um, is something that probably should have happened a long time ago because there really isn't a, a you know a, a paper thickness of a cigarette paper between them in their policies but for us to have um, managed to unite with Paul Murphy and the RISE members I think is a great step forward for the left um, one of the issues that held us back and it's quite a, an important issue. It, it's central to politics in this country was the question of, of, of uh, a border poll in the United Ireland. Paul and his group had a different position on it. So we spent a good few months in um, kind of educational sessions and discussions and debate and reading each other's material and figuring out where, where we're going with this. And um, Rise agreed with us in the end, genuinely agreed with us that they would be for United Ireland and for a border poll. And that, you know, the the perception of the Protestant working class as being this one big homogenous loyalist mob uh, is not correct. And that there is a hope uh, for and an, an a possibility of the uniting. It's a must, actually, but there's a real possibility of uniting Protestant Catholic workers and having a united Ireland not under the current setup that we have of inequality and division that we've just talked about all morning, but a, a true um, vision of, of a united Ireland in, in, in the tradition of James Connolly. And uh, so that's that's really good development. And it was uh, an impediment to us joining together. But now that they, you know, we all share the same position and the same outlook, um, they're officially joining tomorrow. It's in the newspapers today. Um, we had our annual conference yesterday. They attended it and uh, we're all delighted. I think everybody's feeling very positive about it. I mean, I personally have great time for Paul Murphy as, as, a, as a TD and as a, and, and as a human being. And I think that uh, the people around him, I know a lot of them from Tala in particular, they're very, very good, uh, genuine, decent, hardworking people. And I think this is going to be really good for us to be seen to be more unified and I hope that it leads to more unity on the left as we go forward. Just just before Claire comes in, right, because I just want to say this and get this again off my chest because some things in the media really annoy me as you can gather from the rest of this podcast. Yeah. But this, um, the way it was presented by Hugh O'Connell, now I know Hugh O'Connell didn't write the article, the Irish Independent, but the, the way this uh, new unity has been presented is Murphy rebrands, but the left is still divided. So even when the left comes together and merges, it's somehow dividing, according to the Irish Independent. So I, I think that's um, a little bit hilarious, to be perfectly honest. Claire, it's, I'll talk to you next. <clears throat> no, I just, I just think it's really hopeful. And I think, um, going back to last year's election, as depressing as it all is now, you know, a year down the line and, you know, what came of it, I think the weeks leading up to the election, the fact that for the, for the first time, it actually really did seem possible that we were going to have a real kind of rise on the left, that we were going to have some um, 
the potential at least of some kind of uh, left unity government. I think that that even changed the tone of the election. I think there was left unity before uh, we even saw the numbers come out on the day. And I think that really gave people hope. I think people, when people looked at the parties kind of, even, even on panel debates, even just in the comms, there was no bickering between parties on the left. It was very much directed at where the problem lies. People were focusing on their own politics and they were focusing on highlighting the problems within, you know, the the centre right parties that are there and the right parties that are already there. Um, and I think that just made a massive difference to people. I think that really empowered a lot of people to go out and vote left and you know do the whole vote left transfer left. Although next time hopefully we do that that doesn't include the Greens because I think for some people it did the last time. But um yeah and I think this kind of thing just is a reminder for people that it is possible. You know people are willing to work together. Um yeah. just need, left just needs to be given the opportunity. And I, you know, just to just to say on 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 the issue, I think you're dead right that the the the, the fact that we um, <clears throat> try and project that we need a left government um, that is principled and that will work for socialist policies, I think will help to build confidence in people to vote left, and that that has to be obviously you'd, you'd have to work out what those policies are because you'd be dealing with a myriad of different shades of left, if you like, you know, from the Sock Dems to Sinn Fein and ourselves. But hopefully it'll work with them um, just on the green stuff, because we are rebranding ourselves as an eco-socialist party. Um, and that's important. That was important to rise, but it's also important to us. And we've been doing a huge amount of work around the climate bill and uh, ca- um, campaign to stop LNGs being built on, around the country. Um, and also with the climate bill coming in uh, from Eamon Ryan. There's a huge amount of work has to be done on the question of just transition, renewable energy, all that stuff if we're to reach our Paris targets. And outside of COVID, I think this is one of the biggest catastrophes facing us. It's really, really a big challenge. Um, but they aren't, they aren't um what you call divorced from each other. Climate climate chaos and the question of pathogens being released into the atmosphere through the way we produce food. Um you touched on it earlier, Dave, deforestation and the pathogens that are being released into the food chain uh, is a feature of modern capitalism. And it will continue to be so as long as they base their um, their economic uh, lack of planning on the question of growth and profits. So these things are linked and we do need a party that links them. And the problem with the Green Party is that they aren't anti-capitalist. They very much see the, 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 the question of climate change being resolved by capitalism. It can't do it. The two things are totally contradictory. So it does require eco-socialism. And there's been a hemorrhage of lots of really decent members and good councillors and stuff from the Green Party. So we're hoping too that they will see um, the, the new formation as a home that they can come into and, and fight for eco-socialism. Yeah, before we go on to the next story, just to, to touch on what Breed was talking about there, there's an article in today's Business Post on page 12 by Daniel Murray, who again has done some really good work on uh, on the climate stuff, climate breakdown. But deforestation, the wildlife trade and intensive farming, a recipe for lethal virus outbreaks. And the article goes into, you know, what is driving this? Uh, we would argue, obviously, the word is that should be used is capitalism. Uh, but it's talking about in particular in Brazil, deforestation and yellow fever, that the, that the, the direct links between the uh, growth of yellow fever over in Brazil and deforestation because monkeys are being driven out of trees and they're coming in contact with human beings. And then um, they're, they're, those humans are getting infected and then spreading it. And that there's other articles in today's papers as well talking about how the next outbreak 
uh, might be worse than COVID-19 because of these interactions and, and the damage that we're doing to the environment. So just to say that that's, that's a really good article that people should have a read of um, because he's obviously he's done his research. He's talking to experts from Australia, from Brazil, from all over the world about this. It's a, it's a very in-depth piece. But um, Claire, I think you wanted to raise direct provision. Can I can I just say, Dave, before you move off that topic, because because listeners might be interested in reading more on it, uh, two really good writers on this is Rob Wallace and Mike Davis. They've done a whole uh, swathe of writing and, and and scientific explanation around the question of the deforestation, the release of pathogens and um, viruses, you know, that are afflicting our health. Um, and I think if you if you try to get him, I think he would do a podcast, which is Mike Davis. He's very very good. Great. If you, yeah, I, he's based in, in Los Angeles, but he has connections with Ireland. I think his daughter lives in Belfast or something, but he's really interesting writer. Um, I could get you a contact for him if you want Definitely. to try and get him on. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Okay, thanks for letting me in. No, so I just want to touch on something that's great. I think you've been brilliant on both topics, and I think they both relate to our legacy of, well, I say legacy, it's still very much the present, but of institutionalization and how we treat the most vulnerable people with the, the least amount of agency when we can get away with it. And it's, so first of all, it's the, um, there's an article in the Examiner about uh, Roderick Gorman's comments uh, about the, the commission on the Mother and Baby Homes report and how he said that it wouldn't make a difference if the commission was extended because the tapes have been um, found. Now, the, like singularly, the biggest difference it would make is it would actually make a judicial review possible, which is a massive, you know, like, it, I mean, it's a massive um, opportunity for people to actually, people who claim that their stories have been significantly misrepresented you know and this is actually a vehicle for how you know how this could be investigated that's obviously closed off now because the commission is closed as of today um but i think that just the comments alone there's a real flippancy in it you know it wouldn't make any difference i think it's a real it shows a real lack of respect and just a complete lack of understanding on how traumatic this has all been and really i just think you've been brilliant in the doll consistently on raising this and going deep into the what this says about us as a society and particularly as a the government and the level of the amount of work that's gone into preventing real kind of truth and reconciliation and any kind of empathy and compassion and dealing with people, uh, you know, this isn't justice. Yeah. Well, when you think about it, Claire, I mean, this, the way the report said that um, the whole of society was responsible, particularly fathers and families. I mean, when, when you think about that statement on its own and look back at our history, um, and you see the collusion between the church and the state and how deep and how prevalent and how systemic it was, you have to say to yourself that somebody somewhere still involved in the state is really trying to cover up that systemic collusion, that uh, counter-revolution that really oppressed women and the poorest of the poor uh, and, and, and marginalised them through the, the sort of victimisation that they, they did. And the brutality of it was just shocking. But I, uh, and, and you still have the church involved, very much involved in delivering health services, education, social services. Um, and it's not that they're all baddies or anything. There's some really good nuns and priests and brothers and all that out there. That's not the, the question. The question is the institutional structures that allow for religious involvement in the delivery of essential and social uh, good, I think really needs to be broke down. And that's what we mean when we say separate church and state. They should not be involved in the boards of management of hospitals, the boards of management of schools, the delivery of social services, things like services to the blind or 
to orphanages or anything else. We need to have that in the control of the state and properly accountable to state services. And I think that probably deep down in the state, there are civil servants and pen pushers and senior people who are very wedded to the church and to the religious um, privileges that the church have held in this state. And it's not going to be an easy struggle to get the two things separated, but by God, we have to fight for it. Uh, And I think that'll be the, if there is to be uh, justice at the end of the day for all of the victims of all the institutions, the real justice will be when we manage to finally separate church and state. We've made huge strides forward in the last decade uh, by achieving same-sex marriage through referendum and repealing the Eighth Amendment through referendum. Um, and we can go forward with 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 uh, the full separation of, of church and state. And I think that will be the a tribute to those victims um, down through the years. Unfortunately, um, the question of redress, I think, is immediate because they made a bags of the redress for the Magdalene laundries. They made a bags and a complete injustice of the redress for those uh, uh, who are held in industrial schools. But we can do this right. And. It's ironic that one of the biggest providers of, of uh, private health care, actually the biggest provider of private health care in the country, the Bon Secours, are at the heart of the scandal. But they have vast profits and vast amount of property and wealth, and they should be really made to pay up in terms of redress for the victims and survivors that we still fortunately have living with us. But unfortunately, many of them have passed away in the years that this commission has been investigating. But those that are still here and need the supports and want the supports should get it and the church should be told uh, that if they don't pay up uh, their assets will be seized that's what a decent government would do and say look you pay up or or we'll seize your assets but instead we still have the sort of woods deal approach um, to the church in, in, in terms of redress and retribution Yeah I'm, I'm, I'm with you totally on that particularly around education I mean I think it's gaslighting on such a scale that how could you have a situation where what has happened has happened how could you have a situation where an organization because that's all they are they're an organization that has systematically been involved in the abuse the the rape the torture the you know the selling of women and children and they're still allowed to have you know 93 94 percent ownership of our skills i mean education if you control education in any form and like it is indoctrination you know like i I'm experiencing it now. I have a child in junior infants. And like if you if you can influence children at that age and you can introduce religion as the norm, I mean that is just half the battle because it's tradition then, it's in the culture, people don't want their kids to feel left out. It's all of that stuff. And I think that is really one of the biggest fights we have going forward. I think it's it is so ingrained in the culture that people almost it's it's almost too traumatic and you can't deal with trauma when you're in it. And it's happening, it's happened for so long. Like this, you know, we get a big heave of public support from people when you know last year with the, when the records were being suggested they were being destroyed but that dies down people can't stay with that level of anger for so long and I think in this country we just endure where we're too able to endure that we you know relatively we don't really stick with the level of anger we should to drive a real change and get it over the line so I think education particularly and healthcare and having the church out of that is 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 just massive but I think that really links in tightly then to the white paper on direct provision this week you know, we we're, we're in, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, it, it goes forward in that we're institutional, we're institutionalizing mainly women and children as well in homeless accommodation. You know, this is it's that we have many kind of services that this is happening in. But the privatization of direct provision and allowing people to profit off people's misery when they're fleeing war and persecution is just 
like it should be criminal but like when you really look at it it's just such a cruel and inhumane system but the white report you know isn't going to be underpinned by actual legislation i mean it's you know there's these dates being thrown out as in people will be there for four months but there's no legislation going to underpin it there's no real plan on how the housing is going to be delivered when we've seen the state of the the housing system over the past you know two governments where and then we have Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael together who it's almost worse than having just one of them in government because the two of them keep undermining each other as well so I just have very little faith that it's actually going to happen and I think you know from listening to a lot of people involved in activism around direct provision I don't think that you know it seems very positive from them either. I don't know if you want to come in on that again, Bree. Yeah, um, I, I I think the you know Jesus, it's in Roderick O'Gorman's hands. The two the two issues that uh, were being challenged by the Mother and Baby Homes and Direct Provision, and Roderick O'Gorman has issued this white paper. Now, white paper doesn't mean much. You know, there's a long way to go between what happens and the white paper. So I think it's really important we get this one right. But what we don't want to do is to give an excuse to um, people who are opposed to refugees coming in, who don't welcome them, who want to, um, you know, like we've seen all the horrible scenes around um, centres that were due to be built in different parts of the country. We've also seen fantastic um, solidarity. I mean, I was really amazed with Caris Iveen that time when the amount of people that came out marching to support the people in the direct provision centre but what we don't want is to give uh, the far right or a racist an excuse to say they're not welcome here. So when they talk about the provision of own door accommodation, I think that has to be very much linked into the right for everybody to have their own door accommodation. I mean, Claire does amazing work with the homeless um, uh, and uh, uh, with Anto and, and inner city helping the homeless. But I, I think we have to go beyond just saying that it's an issue of housing just for people in direct provision. It's an issue of housing for everybody and that there's a, there's plenty of resources in this country to house everybody. But in the meantime, um, the for-profit system has to be dismantled. Now, the bit I read of his white paper, the, you know, it kind of introduces this idea that the for-profit system will end. It's not going to, nobody will be making money out of it. But, you know, you have to see what that actually means. Will they outsource uh, will they do PPPs on the building? Uh, they're, they're talking about building, I think it's like a half a dozen um, what, reception centres for to house people initially. Then after four months, they'll have their own door accommodation. But we have lots of people who don't have their own door accommodation after many years. And everybody deserves to have that. It's a basic, uh, it's a basic right, a basic right of dignity and ability to be able to, 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 to live, to have your family, to grow up, to be safe. And the right to housing is fundamental for everybody, not um, uh, and everybody who's been deprived of it. So I think we need to make sure that they have the right to work, that they have the right to housing, that they have the right to integrate and be part of this society and to keep their own cultures and languages and all the rest of it. And, uh, to you know, that they're, they're very much made welcome on, on the basis of diversity. Like I say, I haven't read the white paper through and through. I'll have to uh, get an analysis of it now this week. But we've a long way to go before the white paper becomes a reality. Um, and I, I hope to God now the government don't make a bags of it and that the opposition and the campaigners around this issue really put their shoulder to the wheel to get it resolved. Yeah, I mean, my first thinking, like, like exactly like you said, this is supposed to be, he's saying he plans to have this done by 2024. Uh, the actual right to housing. So there is, like, we're in the early stages of, you know, a campaign for a referendum on the right to housing, the right to a home. So 
I would really like to think that we would be there having that referendum in the next year or two and that it would be done. Now, obviously, even having the referendum, then you have, you know, building homes and building public housing. Like we're working on the Oscar Trainer public housing campaign now at the minute. And that looks, depending on the Land Development Agency bill, um, that looks like it could be an opportunity to completely change how we deliver, you know, public cost rental and social housing. Absolutely. and it could be a child change. It could also not be in the land of like that. That bit of progress could have actually sparked them to go even further and completely come back and try and take that land into land development agency. That's a real fear. So like we again, every time we take a little step forward, the the pushback is even fiercer, and yeah. we do get fiercer pushback when they realise they might be losing a little bit of that control. So yeah. I think it's a really important, but a really kind of um, you know, the more progress we have, the more dangerous it becomes. So and I think that's where we are at the minute. We're looking at. I have a real fear that this, if we don't get, say, the referendum over the line and we don't have a real change in how we deliver public housing, that we start to actually see houses and people moving in in the next couple of years when this does happen, because this would be on a much smaller and more um, easily done scale, would mean that it's actually just ha- ha- it's holding people out to racists to uh, to yeah. be attacked. And it's actually holding them, but it's making them vulnerable. And that's obviously not a situation we can allow either. So yeah, no, I'm totally with you on that. And I, I hope that these two things, the kind of change, the move towards cost rental and public housing and the the referendum, hopefully on public on um the right to a home, I go will go a little bit towards preventing that from happening. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Well look, I'm not, I'm gonna finish up on two stories. You might want to come in at the end of them. I'm pretty sure you might want to Claire might want to come in on one anyway, but um and you might breed. Um there's an article in the business post here. FAI asks for share of betting tax to help clear their 70 million debt pile. This is on the back of John Delaney's mess up of the FAI. And the reason I raise it is because of the my concerns about the linkage that would be created and the implications of that, which would be that the FAI, if they get a share of a betting tax, then it's in their interests to have people betting. And I know they've just turned down uh, an agreement, which is believed to be with Paddy Power for multi-million euro thing. But in the future, if this was to become a provision that's provided for by the junior minister, Jack Chambers, at the moment, it would have really risky consequences for a lot of people who are interested in sport because the Irish national team would then be dependent on people betting a lot, which we obviously have a gambling problem in this country. Anyway, um, the second story is... Uh, and it's again, there's one in the business post. Uh, it's an article by Elaine Byrne uh, about white collar crime may fascinate us, but it also costs society dearly. And in her article, she's, she goes into, you know, how uh, when it's white collar criminals, we look at their background, their socioeconomic status, where they work. We look into all that detail that we sometimes ne- don't necessarily look into with violent criminals in working class housing estates, right? But the one thing that she omitted in the entire thing, which is about, by the way, the the, the couple, uh, Lindsay Clark and uh, what is the partner's name? It's not there. It's not listed there. Um, anyway, it, it's about a couple, Keith Flynn and Lindsay Clark, two solicitors who stole 400,000 euros uh, from the banks, right? They don't mention that she's a former Fine Gael candidate in Cork, in, in Cork Northwest Ward in 2014. So not a million years ago or anything, but there's no mention of it there in the 
Sunday Business Post. Surprisingly, they do mention it in the Sunday World, which is where I got the information from uh, uh, that she ran. She got 300 votes in that election. But I find it interesting that, you know, the broadsheets aren't referring to her as a former Fianna Gael candidate, because I can imagine if she was a member of People Before Profit or if she was a member yeah, of the yeah. campaign, <laughs> it would be what everybody was leading with would be former Fianna Gael candidate or jailed for fraud, white collar criminal fraud charges. So I just thought it was an interesting perspective that Elaine Byrne yeah. managed to avoid. That is very interesting. In fact, I don't know, Elaine Bourne's thesis on that is absolutely a load of crap. In fact, it's when poor people get into, you know, get locked up or, you know, fall foul and start doing drugs or crime or whatever. You hear every minutiae about their lives and their detail and their background. Uh, Do you know what I mean? I don't know what she's on about. In the examiner. The examiner actually did, uh, it, it was a full page, but it was kind of like two pieces. One was a timeline. In the timeline, they mentioned that she was a candidate. But, you know, I didn't see it in the, in the main article. But what really bothered me was, aside from the not focusing on the fact that this was somebody, with, these were people with massive, you know, privilege and massive, massive access to resources, um, was that the, the the tone around it, like they called him a Walter Mitty char- character and, you know, how they use disguises and gloves. And it was this real lighthearted. And it, is, it goes back to that white collar crime. It's the idea that it's not dangerous. Um, and they used homeless people. They actually went out onto the streets and they they paid homeless people for their PPS numbers, paid them 100 euro. And I just, that, when they say that turns my stomach, I mean, and it, with the link then between somebody running for Fianna Gael and somebody willing to do that, it's like people, somebody supporting a party that is responsible for so many people being on the streets and is responsible for so many people not having access to a basic quality of life then being willing to go out and actually exploit them and being willing to take their, their they used to get their identities was it their, yeah so they took the pps numbers and then they set up fault so they had their name addressed pps so they they basically created these identities and set up bank accounts and then claimed all sorts with them um you know like it's it's it's, it's so much worse than just fraud. Like they exploited people who are already so exploited and oppressed and marginalized by the state. And the fact that this woman was running for a party that is responsible for so much of this just actually torn yeah. my stomach. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't surprise me, but it's like, yeah. how yeah. much more can you denigrate people? Like there's such a lack of dignity. And so, one man actually rang Liveline during the week, a homeless guy, a man, a guy that was homeless in Cork. And he said he had been approached by somebody who asked him for his PPS number and it really didn't sit with him. And, when he saw her on the paper, he thought it could be her. Now he she didn't give him any money, but it's just, it's just such another level of disrespect. It's such a, a just disregarding people is unimportant. And like you, even your, you don't even need your identity. So why would you need your identity? Like the 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 assumption that somebody who's on the street isn't going to be going into a bank and setting up their own bank account anytime soon, isn't going to be setting up an NTL or a Virgin Media account because they set up all of these things for proof of address and that. And obviously, yeah. if somebody else sets up a Virgin Media account with all their details, that's going to clash and it's going to raise an alarm. Just the assumption that these people weren't going to be a part of society, they weren't yeah. going to be doing any of these things, just shows such a heartless yeah. level of disregard for these people as full human beings. It's also, it, it's also incredibly prejudiced and snobbery uh, you know that that this is people are in these situations permanently, inevitably. They'll never yeah. escape. Yeah. Something almost like, oh, we take this as natural. You know, this. But is they the do though. Things. Yeah, I know. I mean, I Leo Varadkar has come out and said homelessness is normal. I mean, like he tried to normalize yes, that, yeah. and it's one of the worst things. Fianna Gael policy aside, like there are people. There's, there's a broad spectrum in Fianna Gael that I, you know. 
the policies that Creole, no matter what you say. But there's a level of heartlessness that Leo Varadkar, in the, in the commentary he's made and the messages he sent, particularly when he was T-shocked to people in homelessness, particularly I, I look at children in homelessness, looking at him and the way he talks about it and how you know, unrepresented they would feel by the person that's supposed to represent them all. Um, yeah. yeah, like this, this, and this is, this is the result of that. This is like, they're not seen as human. These people that their identities were taken, it's because they weren't seen as human in the first place. And it's just, yeah. I'd love to see a lot more, um, you know, writing around that and investigating into like how something like that can happen and just really kind of digging deeper into it. Absolutely, yeah. Elaine Bourne's kind of losing the plot there, isn't she? <laughs> to, to be fair to her in her article, she's actually saying that, that there's a lot more of this that needs to be um, dragged out. She's talking about white collar criminals. She's saying that right. they do have um, a, a violent impact, even though it's not in your face okay. violence. So she she means well on that side of things. I just think with her former Fine Gael uh, hat on, she decided to leave that little bit out, which is which is of interest. I think it's a major, a bit of major interest to the public on it. But what was really interesting about the cases themselves Breed, in case you hadn't been made aware of this was it was only picked up on by a department official who spotted a spelling mistake that they were making the same spelling mistake on all of their applications so there were six uh, applications that had this exact same spelling mistake and that's how it was picked up on it wasn't through great detailed work or investigation of people like herself and her her partner but um claire you wanted in just before we finish up no I just want to end on a positive today because obviously, so we spoke last week about the funding issues on the Stardust and we got um, an email from Darren Mack and the solicitor who was representing a lot of the families this week to, to say that that had been sorted. Um, the the certificates for the legal aid are being signed off, you know, immediately um, and the work is going to be able to start. And I'd like, from my understanding of, I don't get the impression that it's, it's what Darren was advocating for. It's like, it is still going to be, the mechanism is still going to be legal aid, but it's, he you know he can work it he's gonna he's gonna instead of attaching a barrister to every single family and having you know one person work a case because this is so much more complicated than that he will you know he's gonna work it out that he will you know have a bunch of people you know working on everybody's at the same time and representing everybody to be able to get the teams and the the you know the kind of things that happen like I said last week like my mom like the police coming back and asking her to change her story and things like that like these are the things that are so integral to the, the story of what happened, particularly after the, the fire itself. So, but, but some good news this week. Yeah, great that the funding has been released. Great that the kind of anxiety around it for the delay um, has been removed from you know, the families particularly. And like you, you were talking there about, um, Brad, about you know, women who have since passed and are, are others who are just becoming really old as well. Um, and we need to see justice for them, you know, while we still can similarly with the with the stardust i mean that fear is just present for i think all of us all the time that any more people might not make it to to the actually sit in the inquest and hear the words yeah. they need to hear so that's some good news this week very good very good yeah. well on that positive note and we probably do need to bring in a positive section to this podcast as well positive news section because <laughs> <laughs> maybe we like many elements of the left we get dragged down that too uh, well the to left is different. feeling very positive to this element of the left is feeling very positive today anyway about <laughs> rise join and yeah. so i'm delighted about that as well yeah. And, and I'm sure about the decline of Fianna Fáil in the polls too. But uh, <laughs> listen, <laughs> I want to thank Breed Smith, uh, Solidarity People Before Profit TD for Dublin South Central for joining us. Um, this has been the week of work, part of Left Block. Uh, again, you can find out more information about our uh, alternative media project and the political education project on patreon.com forward slash left block. Thanks, Breed, for joining us. And we look forward to, uh, to speaking to you all again next week. Thanks very much for having me. Both yourself and Claire was a very enjoyable conversation. Thanks very much. Thank you.